0: everybody what's good what's good it's good to see you all my name is Sonny one of the pastors here at Detroit Church and uh grateful for you being here today I want to just kind of echo what Lindsay just kind of talked about in the summer Thursdays like I, w- I would love to see you out here with us hanging out I um, had a chance to play a little basketball with some of the young fellas and dominate a little bit on the corner you feel me you know Don't worry about how old they were. That's not the point right now. (laughs) That's not the point. Just know that I dominated. (laughs) And uh, we brought the hoop out. And of course, they're looking at me, you know, like, okay, man, you, you know, you look about 50. (laughs) What can you really do? Now, I will say this. I've grown up around hoopers. I grew up with the game. So I definitely know how to look the part. And I played the game. I played through high school and, um. You know, you give me a basketball, I'm going to make you think, okay, well, you know, he he, he holds it right at least, so he can dribble it right. Let me see his form, okay. And uh, I have fun out there with the young guys. If you see me limping around here, you're like, <laughs> oh, man, mind your business. Mind your business. But this is an opportunity for us not to have some big, super-duper organized program, but honestly, just to be on the block. Just to be on the block. To get a chance to meet some new people, see some faces, know some names. Um, I I dream of a day when we can do that and not have to put out a flyer calling it Summer Thursdays. <laughs> but it's just just what we do. It's what we do. I feel like we're in this critical space where, it, like, we're being like we're being maybe we're growing up. Maybe it's the Lord refining us. Maybe it's him understanding our true purpose and identity and why he's called us together as a community. You know, where we don't just look the part like the pushing 50-year-old on the corner with the, rock, the basketball in his hand, but this is who we are through and through, wherever we are, wherever you are. Not just over here, I'm Dexter and Finkel, but wherever you live, there's, there's this growing tension that I can't escape in my own heart. I can't escape it in my own heart. What the Lord is requiring of me and how I've become so good at like looking the part or giving him just enough. You know, God is not interested in my just enough sacrifice. He's not. He doesn't want it. And throughout the book of Amos, we see God's heart, God's pounding heart and God's hot fiery judgment on people who had become very good at looking apart. part and these were not just foreigners to the plan and the covenant of God these were God's own people these were his kinfolk these were the people that he put it all on the line for the people that that he empowered The people that that he set them apart because he made his home in the midst of their camp. The people who had become the the envy of of all these surrounding nations because they just didn't get how they were able to do it. Like they didn't have some banging, killing military that by natural means would make them successful. They had the presence of God, they had the promise. They had the the covenant. They had the relationship. And the relationship meant something to them. It not just required, but empowered them to live a certain way. And that is what they were doing for time period until they were not anymore. Until they got away from it. And God, as we see throughout this book, calls them out. And he calls them out, not in a, hey, I've got something to share with you. Well, you know, I've been thinking. <laughs> he calls them out in epic fashion. He calls them out by basically prophesying their demise. He wants them to know that he is no longer okay with them just looking the part, but he's fed up and he is about to do something that they would have never imagined. He's about to destroy them. So we get into the text. I'll be honest, this is a sobering word. This is a sobering word. Fitting for a sobering day. I am going to be honest here and just kind of put it all out there. I'm, as an imperfect vessel, honored to serve this house as pastor. Pastor honor to have the opportunity to share from the sacred desk it's a beautiful thing to share God's word but I'm also experiencing the pain of loss I'm also my I'm borrowed word that we see in the scripture we're going to talk about in a minute here I'm also lamenting on what has been lost both from a personal standpoint but also, when I look at the church, when I look at this city, when I look at the news clippings and even the, the politics that we find ourselves in conversations engaged around. If you've been paying attention, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And information that just came out this past week, I find myself lamenting and, and, and grieving And wondering, God, how far are we? Do we even realize how far we've become? How much we've fallen away? Do we even really have a real sense that you hate the worship that we're offering you? Do we have a real sense at what our sacrifice coupled with the way that we're living, how our worship, how our outward expression The things we're saying with our mouth, the praise we're bringing you with our mouths and our hands and our gatherings and our cool branding and all the things that we like to feel good about ourselves. Do we really have a sense of how you really feel about that? I don't want to be not fed up if he's fed up. I don't want to be okay. It's going to work out eventually if he's over that. What we're seeing in this chapter here and in this book are things that God is over. And that's a hard word for us to hear. It's a hard word for them to hear. Because when Amos is prophesying this word again to God's very own people, they are a juggernaut. They're still very powerful. Their military is very strong. So the words that Amos is saying really doesn't make a lot of sense. And I feel like there's this divine setup to where we are right now in our culture, in our time, where we are as the church, and what is happening in the world around us. We can't be okay if God's not okay. God forbid we call ourselves wanting to be more tolerant than God. (laughs) And we offer our worship, we offer our allegiance to the extent that he cosigns our worship. We make ourselves judge. We judge God. <laughs> We're like, God, okay, good, good God. <laughs> good job. See, you did this. We know you're like this. And the minute that we get, we bump into a revelation of your word, we bump into the characterization that we see throughout the whole council of scripture, the whole council of God, we judge God and we no longer want him. Is that us? Is that you? Is that American evangelical Christianity? And I think we need to put ourselves on the witness stand today and ask the difficult question Does my worship truly flow from the inside out? Or is the stoppage taking place in my own heart? Am I simply so good at looking the part that I? I am no longer being confronted by what God is truly after in me and in my city. Let me pray. Father, I need your help. I thank you for your word. We're not here for a good time. Father, we're here to meet you. We don't want to come one way and leave the exact same way. We need to be confronted, challenged. Changed. will you transform us father as we respond to your heart with willingness and openness will you transform us God will you help us to see what you see and feel what you feel father we thank you for even how you speak through the, the literary forms of the word we're going to read today, God. You speak even through that. I pray that we would meet it and receive it and that it would allow us to see even your grace in the midst of judgment. As you invite us to fellowship with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 What does it mean to you to look the part? I want to ask you that question for, for you to maybe write down, for you to journal about this week, if you're a journaler, for you to kind of think about, how am I like doing a really good job at looking the part? This is God's problem with his people. Meet me in Amos chapter 5. We're going to read through the first 17 verses, and I'm going to do, I'm going to do it in sections. I want to kind of break down for us Not just what is said, but how it's said. Let me just say this. This is part of the beauty and the mystery of our God. I remember getting in conversations with people over the years um, about what I would call a theology of beauty, but just understanding how God is, how God operates. And when I say understanding, I mean like trying to understand and understanding to the extent that he allows us to understand it right because no one can solve God no one has the copyright or the trademark on who he is but he's given us his word that's the primary way that we can kind of come into understanding of who he is but what we can learn about God is that it's not just it's not only what he does but the way he does it the way that he does it we see this even in the very breakdown of the word our word gospel comes from a beautiful greek word and i don't say this greek word to floss although i do love this word it's a very beautiful word but it's the greek word euangelion euangelion and this word is not just the preaching of the gospel right but it also when you unpack it in its original meaning it also has to do with the way that it comes the way that it's delivered the way that it's presented If I can put it like this, it's the gift but also the gift package or the gift wrapping. There's something about the wrapping that communicates the kind of God that he is. There's something not just about the fact that God sent his son to die but the way he sent him, when he sent him, communicates his heart. It communicates the beauty and the the mystery of our God. And, and, And sometimes we can... We can overemphasize something trying to make a certain point, for example, in the debate or conversation about style over substance. And I just want to you know, remind some of us that yes, substance is vital to God. We can't just have something that looks the part, right? But there's nothing on the, there's nothing that's really substantial about it. That's not true. It's not what God is after. But also, let's not be mistaken that God is in the style and the substance. There's something about the beauty of creation and not just the functionality of creation that helps us understand how God moves. And it is the the unifying or the coming together of them both that helps us see him, walk with him, know him intimately, and get this, helps us represent him. I want to represent him according to the way that he's called us to represent him. So we see a unifying theme here. In Amos chapter 5, where Israel's false security in their ability to look the part, in their ability to do all of the right religious things, to have all of the right religious practices, and be ignorant to the fact that they were fooling no one, especially not God. They were fooling no one. So what we see here is Amos lamenting over this fact. He's lamenting. He's sorrowful over it. He's weeping over it. We're going to get a little bit more into like the depth of what that word means, just a little bit. And I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Amos is going to help us understand what constitutes true worship for us today. Not just lip service, but social justice that flows out of us because it flows out of the heart of God. I want you to understand the literary form of this, this, these verses we're going to read again, Amos 5, 1 through 17, is something that is called a, a chiastic structure. A chiastic structure. And I have a slide that just kind of gives you a little glimpse at, at what this means. But, but the first few verses we see the lamenting. And this, this is going to help us just kind of, again, understand what we're reading here. Understand how, how the way God is giving us the style that he's presenting the substance is again because it says something about who he is so the first few verses is the lament then there's an appeal to the remnant the lament the appeal to the remnant then he gives us the evidence the evidence then again there's an appeal to the lament and then there's the i'm sorry appeal to the remnant then if he he closes this section with a lament What's interesting about this is even this literary form, it kind of flows from the inside out. It flows from the inside out. Let's read. Amos chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Yikes. Amos is shocking his heroes right now again. Like everything is looking amazing for them. They're a national power, right? Like this should be a time of celebration, Amos, not lament. What Amos is doing, he is almost like he's he's singing a funeral song. He's presenting them their obituary and they're still alive. Can you imagine reading your own obituary? Being able to read and understand and take a look at it. What an eerie thing. This is a very eerie atmosphere for them. He announces their death and the weight of it means that like lamenting. It's appropriate. We'll understand why in a minute here. The reason why that's significant, we can understand that this is indeed an element, is we see the the words that he's using here, we see them used often in the Hebrew culture. And when they use these words again, it means someone who was with us is no longer with us. And they're they're crying, they're weeping. They would often tear their clothes apart, they would often hire official. Weepers who would come and and empathize and weep with them. This was a part of how they worshiped and responded to God. Man, you imagine having someone to weep with you when you you were weeping. There's this, I would call it lie, deception even in the body of Christ. Those of us who are faith-filled people those of us who understand what God has done through Jesus, those of us who hold fast to our confession of faith and the promise and have received it, those of us who are people of grace and full of joy, the joy of the Holy Ghost, guess what? There is a need and a time to weep. There is a need and a time to lament. We shared briefly last Sunday how one of my close friends, a pastor in this city died A week ago Thursday, she lost her life. It's a lot of conversation about how she died. I'll just tell you, I've talked with detectives, I've talked with law enforcement, I've talked with her spiritual father and some of the leaders at the church, and her cause of death is still being investigated. There are some signs that point to a certain direction, right? But until it's conclusive, until a final decision and determination has been made, we're just going to mourn with the fact that she's no longer with us. And this has been an opportunity for me to learn what it means to weep and to be okay with that. So if you see me sad or weeping, please know that I'm okay. I love God. I'm not necessarily, a, you know, a basket case, maybe sometimes. But, <laughs> but I want to I wanna weep with those who weep. And I'm, I'm grateful for those that are weeping with me as I weep. And I think that's important that as the church that we understand and we're okay with that. Amen? Amen? Like, look, like, again, we are so good at looking the part and God's not interested in that. Not only is he not interested in that, he flat out rejects it. Like he's coming after it to expose it and blow that thing up. So it's important that we understand that we're spirit, we're soul, and we're body. What does it mean to worship God deeply on a soulish level? What does it mean to worship him from an emotional standpoint? I know some of us don't want to hear that. David said, my soul makes her boast in the Lord. <laughs> like, if you're going to read the Psalms, you'll get a deep sense of like, David's love for God, his intimacy with God, a deep sense of his, his worship, worship from his whole being with God. He says, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you. When was the last time your soul longed after him? You know, what's interesting about our, so our anatomy as a community, so to speak, we got people from different backgrounds and different traditions. And I would even say there are certain traditions that are good at emphasizing certain ways to connect to God, respond to God in his word. Some of us come from a background where it's very natural for us to respond from an emotional, emotive place. That comes very easy to us. But maybe not as developed in what it means to serve and worship God with our minds. Remember, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. Others of us come from traditions where that's, that's, that's all we did. We sit. We contemplate. We meditate. We know what it means to worship him with our minds in silence and, and quiet. We are very comfortable in certain liturgical settings. But when it comes to the more emotional response, that's when we get a little uncomfortable. and we, Some of us want to start rebuking the devil or calling this like this is out of order. Who's in charge? What's going on here? And we, we come to God, we bring our, our whole selves to him as worshipers, as, as those who, whom he has breathed his life into. These are gifts that he's given us to respond to him, the triune God. So as Amos is, is wanting to, to be used by God as a voice, as a voice who is crying out, a voice who's representing the, the heart of God, he's lamenting. I think it's safe to assume he's maybe even weeping as he sings this song at a funeral. And he's reading their own obituary. He calls them the virgin Israel. Interesting phrase, Amos. This word, this word there suggests a, a vulnerability and, and an unrealized potential. An unrealized potential that, that, that is, is, is made clear in their untimely death. There's a lot of hope and expectation and excitement and then nothing. Then she's brought to nothing. The land that was long promised to them, the promised land, the land promised to Abraham, he says has become a grave instead of a a promise. It's a a grave instead of a refuge. Verse 3, he says, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. They were decimated in the truest sense of the word. (laughs) The word decimated comes from the first part there comes from a Latin word, deca, which means ten in Latin. And this comes from a practice that the Roman military army had when their soldiers would rebel against the, the generals or when they would just fail or lose in battle, they would line them up and run their sword through the tenth soldier. So one, two, three, four,, seven, and they're ten. Gone. They called it the decimation. What God is saying to them is is that that just like that Roman practice, he's going to leave one-tenth and not take it. Because they failed to represent him. They failed to to see that their worship was looking the part that God was not interested in that. God would completely, he said, I'm going to completely annihilate you. I'm going to decimate you because of this. This is a big deal to me. Wow. Can you imagine losing... That much of your army? God's going to leave one-tenth. He's going to take out nine-tenths. <laughs> like if you take one-tenth, you may be okay. You may be able to survive. God said, I'm going to take nine-tenths and leave one-tenth. In other words, they're dead. They're dead men walking. It's over for them. That's the limit. Amos follows up. It almost seems contradictory. Listen what he says, verse 4. Remember, this is the appeal, the appeal to the remnant. He says, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour, with none to quench it for Bethel. Oh, you who turn justice into wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Here's what he's saying. Seek me. Follow me. Search for me. Look for me. Don't seek Bethel. Don't seek Gilgal. Do not seek Beersheba. Beersheba. I know those words don't mean anything to us, right? But I'm going to explain to you why they meant a lot to them. Bethel is a name that was associated with the patriarch Jacob. Just the very mention of the name meant something weighty to them. It meant like, uh uh-oh, watch out. God's about to reveal himself. In Genesis chapter 28, we see Jacob's first occasion here at this place when he came to Bethel as a homeless wanderer without any really certain future. He fell asleep and he dreams and he awakes with this new sense of awareness and and consciousness that the Lord is in this place. I came here with the past. I'm leaving with the future. I came here really uncertain about some things and now I got like clarity. There are things that are being revealed to me because the Lord is in this place. And Jacob was streaming here. He has this vision of a ladder. This vision of a ladder that was linking heaven and earth. Surprisingly, the purpose was not to provide Jacob with the means to get to God. What it did, it brought... God to him. So for them, this place represented God in the midst of his people. And it also pointed to the fact that God would come to us through Jesus. So can we understand the significance there? That God is here. God is is with us. The second time in Genesis 25, he comes back to Bethel. And he remembers his earlier experience. And God again reveals himself to him. So this, this was a part of like the, the, the national consciousness of the people of Israel. Jacob's name was changed eventually to Israel. This was a part of their identity. So this was not just a spiritual reality for them, it was also their history. God was revealing himself. God was speaking to his people. Now, can you imagine hearing the word "Seek me?" and live, don't seek Bethel. Like, what do you mean, God, this is who we are? <laughs> what you mean? Like, this is how you revealed yourself to us. This is what you, this is what we've been singing about. This is what we've been practicing. Like, this is a big deal to who we are. Can we even imagine ourselves, God, walking with you without Bethel? <sighs> the next place. Let me also just say, in Amos, there's a great significance on place. It's a great significance on geography. It's one of the reasons we're calling this series Like a Good Neighbor, and we have the flag of our city posted up behind us. I'll say a little bit more about that. The second place, Beersheba. Sheba. This place was associated with every member of the the patriarch community. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Each of them had great significance. And basically what it meant was that God is with you in all that you do. God is with you in all that you do. Abraham receives this confirmation that he's not alone. God is with him here. Isaac has his vision at night. And the Lord announced himself that he's not only with him, but he says, don't fear because I'm with you. You don't have to fear because I'm with you. And then years later in Genesis chapter 46, Jacob has this this experience. He's heading to Egypt. He's going to reunite with his long lost son, Joseph. And he's a little nervous and he's fearful. And again, God appears to him in the night vision and he says, do not be afraid. Why? Because I'm right there with you. I just want us to understand the significance of what these places meant to them. And the fact that Amos, this young whippersnapper from Judah, by the way, is coming up to them, telling them, don't seek that. The Lord says, seek me. Don't seek your religious practices. Don't seek the the cultural identities that make you feel so good. Seek me. Seek me and live. The third place is Gilgal. I can imagine they're terrified by now. They're terrified. Again, the the place of Beersheba represented this companionship with God, this friendship with God. And now he calls out Gilgal. Gilgal was significant because it represented the first campgrounds when the people of God entered into the promised land. So this place represented resources, it represented a fulfilled inheritance, it represented the promise actually came true. God actually did what he said he was going to do after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. What Amos wants them to know is that these shrines were trusted to fulfill a promise instead of the the one we should be worshiping. Paul puts it like this. We are people known for worshiping creation rather than creator. Like that, That's looking the part. In what ways have we started worshiping? And when we say worshiping, maybe I need to use some different words because we we may say, well, I'm not worshiping things. I don't have idols like they had idols. But are there things in your life that you've started to put trust in over God? Are there things in your life that maybe are an easier word for you to hear when it comes to like trusting this, trusting your ability, putting your security in something you can tangibly see and understand and feel. And when God tells you to walk away from something, that's difficult. Those are opportunities for us to identify the idols in our heart. Help us identify who we are truly worshiping because true worship will always produce something. So this... Is the indictment. Now, this is, 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 is kind of hidden in the appeal, but I don't want us to miss the appeal. It's still an appeal. Like he wants them to know, like, yo, there's still a chance here. Now, is this a chance for everybody? I don't think so. I don't think so. What he's specifically calling out to is the remnant. He uses the word the house of Joseph. This gives us a clue. He's not talking about the whole nation. He's talking about the remnant. What is a remnant? It's the people within the people. like it's the, it's the people as God sees. See, we talk often about how many churches are in Detroit. You can drive down Finco, Puritan, Livanoia. You can count the churches, right? Do you think that's how God sees the church in Detroit? How many churches are in Detroit? There's one, there's one, right? We have the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is how you and I see the church. And it's honestly, it's not even our job to try to determine how oh, you're part of the church. We know you not. <laughs> I know today I'm standing up here preaching God's word. I don't look like a pastor today. I remember my son told me some years ago, <laughs> he was like really young, like first grade. And uh, he said, dad, we went, he went to a school where there were a lot of, there happened to be a lot of like pastors there. He said, dad, why don't you dress like a pastor? <laughs> I asked him something, what does a pastor dress like? <laughs> he had a theological awakening in first grade. Amen. Like, like, we're good at looking the part and we place judgments on people because they, they look a way that we're familiar with. They, they, you know, they remind us of something. And we connect that automatically to, like, what the church should be. And God's saying, you got it all twisted, you got it all wrong. <sighs> What Jeroboam did, Jeroboam was the king of Israel at this time, Jeroboam II to be specific. When he separated from the tribe of, of Judah, he basically invented his own religion. <laughs> he basically said, ah, we know the history is great, but we're gonna, we got to have a better way. And in his mind, this is going to be more convenient for the people who want to worship because not only is there just the temple at Jerusalem, now there are three ways to worship. There are three shrines in Bethel and Gilgal and Belshazzar. And he also changed the feast date, which used to be in the seventh month. Now he says, we're gonna do it on the eighth month. Because he wanted independence from God. He wanted people to look at him like he was spiritual, like he was smart. He had no idea that God doesn't just have us do things, He doesn't just give instruction just because He's bored. There was great significance to the timing, the place, the day when God gave them instructions to do certain things. There was great significance. He's thinking, why have the people travel all the way to Jerusalem where now we've separated, we're, we're another kingdom, we can do it right here. What he did not know that was Jerusalem had so much significance, not just in the past, but appointed to something in the future. Jerusalem was the place where Jesus would, would ride in on a donkey and the people would cry out, Hosanna! Blessed be the name of the Lord! Jerusalem was the place where he would be killed and buried just outside of. Jerusalem was the place that the apostles would, would gather and God would give vision and, and, and his plan for the church. The church. Jerusalem was the place where we see in the scriptures where there would be a new Jerusalem representing God's, Jesus's eternal throne, the eternal Messiah's eternal throne. This place had great significance. So so God gives instruction not just because and his plans are not to be messed with people. His designs are not to be messed with. Uh, Even Moses took things into his own hands and had a moment of frustration. Like I be honest, I kind of feel a little bad for Moses. Moses, the deliverer, the man who was an emotional man, but we see him with the people for the people. We see him being vulnerable, we see him like being in touch with, with his weaknesses. Right? I'm not a good talker. I struggle here. We see him depending on God and God's power coming upon him and freeing the people through 10 plagues, allowing the people of Israel who were slaves at the time in Egypt to be set free. And they wander, they go through on this journey to the promised land for 40 years and they get almost like to the promised land, the very end of the 40 years. And Moses has a major fail. Here's what happens. God tells him in the first instance, when the people were needing water, there was no water to be found. God gives him a very specific word. He says, I want you to go to this rock, and I want you to strike the rock with your rod. And when you strike the rock with your rod, water is going to come out. The people will be able to drink from it, and the animals will be able to drink from it too. So Moses does as God says. Everybody's happy, right? Everybody's drinking, having a good time. Wasn't drinking, drinking, but it was, you know. Their thirst was quenched. Amen. Some of y'all got excited. The point is he obeyed God the first time. The second time, God tells Moses, he makes a little tweak to what he told him, right? He says, this time, don't go to the rock and strike the rock. I want you to speak to the rock. Moses is tired of this church. He's tired of this church. He's tired of the people. The people are complaining. The people are heart, heart of heart they don't want to listen, they're begging, like, it's it's not a good situation, and let's be honest, Moses is getting up there, he's a little old, right, so the older you get, (laughs) listen, I'm not old, so back up off me, but I will say, no, I'm not going to say that, all right, (laughs) Moses at a point in his life where he's like, man, listen, these people tripping, they're tripping, and he doesn't fully cooperate with the way God told him to manifest this miracle what he does is he strikes the rock again because that's what he was familiar with it happened in the past that's what God told him before it worked in the past how many times have have we put our trust in like a way a certain formula of doing things without seeking God Like like this exposes again the, the false worship and the idolatry of the human heart. So what does God say? God says, because you misrepresented me, you will not be allowed to enter into the promised land. After 40 years of wandering, what? For real, God? Like it's, again, when God gives us something when God gives instruction, right? It's not just like, you know, here's the way to do it, or you could do it that way, or you could do it that way. Many times there's something that God is wanting to reveal himself, his character through. This is why even in hardness, even in crises, even in tragedy, we got to walk through it and trust God. Some of us want to avoid it. Like, okay, God is over here and God's like, uh, nope. Go through here and see my power manifest in your life. See, Moses didn't have the revelation that him, first time striking the rock, pointed to the chief cornerstone, the atoner, the solid rock would be struck for our salvation. He's only struck once. He's not still being struck, right? The second time he was to speak to the rock. This points to Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah, and we receive Him, the Living Water, by simply confessing with our mouths and believing in our hearts. Moses didn't know that. Moses, like these people, thirsty—they get on my nerves. I'm over it. How many times we try to escape? Difficulty and hardship and even suffering. And we miss something so beautiful and so sweet that God wants to reveal to us. (sighs) Let me move on. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live. Again, it's pointing to the house of of Joseph. Verse 7, he says, oh, you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. We see here that justice is, is, is important to God. It's an outworking of his character. It's specifically an outworking of his holiness. It sets him apart. He's talking to the remnant. They are to be set apart, not like the others. I know the rest of Israel is tripping, but I got a people within a people. Even us as a a community sitting here, I know we have visitors here. What up, though? Glad you're here. For those who call themselves like their place of worship, even Detroit, all of Detroit church is not Detroit church, if you know what I mean. I'm not just talking about those who are seen on the stage doing stuff or serving in a certain capacity. I'm just talking about a heart level those who have committed to what it means to follow Jesus. Is that you? He's speaking here to the remnant. And to the remnant, he wants to know like justice matters to me. It's an outflowing of my character. They, they changed the experience of worship. They changed, they, they changed the the character of God that should be seen not just among them but all the nations in this beautiful picture of justice and they made it something bitter. They made it something evil. And they did it by the way they mistreated the people who were less powerful, less important, and less rich. Amos is saying you go to your gatherings, you go to your feasts, you go to your you know the, the places you go to worship. You go, you sing, and you come away unchanged. You go and you have a good time and you, you block the day off and on your calendar. You check the box and you go home and you do the next thing and you're still the same. Wicked. You've turned something beautiful into something that is disgusting. <sighs> Hear this. True worship. is when God's character shows itself in every aspect of our lives. In every aspect of our lives, including how we treat people. True worship flows from the inside, changes us, but then it affects people. It connects with people. It's something people can get a glimpse of God. When we aren't doing this, how are they seeing God? And if we are living in it this way, then what are they really seeing in the name of God? Those who are supposed to be transformed. Those who are worshiping call themselves worshiping the transformer are not themselves transformed. Like the math ain't mathin'. Like it ain't something that's not adding up. And he breaks down that some evidence. Now, get this. This is the central part of the passage, verses 1 through 17. Remember, this is a chiastic structure, right? So he kind of has first two approaches, lamenting and then appeal. Then it's this evidence. Then he... Works backwards, appeal, and lamenting. The first part of this evidence is just, to me, it speaks volumes. It speaks theological volumes. Because the evidence is not just the way they're behaving. The evidence is God. (laughs) It's the sovereignty and the power of God. He's the one that sets the table. He's the one that sets the boundaries. He's the one that declares what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. He's the one that separates the the sky and the land. It says in verse 8, he who made the Pallades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, L-O-R-D, all caps. When you see that, please remember that it speaks to God, Yahweh God, who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing. Verse nine: Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress? Now, this is how the the evidence starts off by pointing us to God. This is a hymn, okay? This lament is a hymn, and the the theological term that they had for it was a it was a doxa, doxological hymn. Get this: the doxological hymn commemorates the name and the power of Yahweh it commemorates it puts them in remembrance of it kind of realigns them to the name and the power of Yahweh again this is why this is the central part of this passage this anchors the lamenting and the appeal on both sides who God is the word doxology comes from the Greek word doxa it means glory it means splendor has the idea of like grandeur right God is wanting them to know that I am who I am all by myself. He's providential over the seasons. He marks the beginning and the ending of the seasons. And he wants them to know I can do that in the stars. I do it On the land. I do it with nations. I set up one. I put down another. I want you to know your time is up. This is what he's saying to them. (laughs) Listen. I'm not on an anti-American, you know, kick, anything like that, right? I pray. I pray for our nation. I weep over our nation. But I think some of the parallels we see here in American exceptionalism even, in this arrogance that we have, like we're God's chosen nation, when I think we're so very, very far, embarrassingly far from that, And we have to sit with the fact that God raises up one and he puts down another. And this is an opportunity for us as a remnant to repent, seek him, and live. Or keep seeking our religious practices and see our destruction. Then he goes into exhibit A, verse 10. They hate him. He reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. This is one of the first marks of truly seeking God. Again, he says, seek me and live. One of the first marks of truly seeking God is to love truth, love his word. What they're doing is the exact opposite of the psalmist when David says, oh, how I love your law. I bind it on my heart. Listen, if you're a person who've come, who's coming to the faith and you like you, you want like you want to do things right where you've been born again let's say you like you've heard the like what happens when you get saved amen your spirit is now alive unto God you're coming to church maybe you want to get in the D group and all those things. I want to challenge you and encourage you to make space for God's word make it a priority in your life. like what that means is if you have to put it on your calendar, if you have to mark out time by yourself every day. Read the word. Pray God's word over you. But this is one of the the, the marks of what it means to seek him. How can you seek him and not have a, a heart, a yearning for his word? It's not possible. It's not possible. God has bound himself to his word. God has said heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will remain forever. Young people hear this. David said, how can a young man keep his ways pure? By living according to the word. David said, I will hide your word in my heart that I won't sin against you. James talks about borrowing some language from David. Receiving the engrafted word with meekness because it, it heals and delivers the soul. It changes, it confronts the soul. Like how are we doing with our response to God's word? I say it all the time, and I say it again. This time up here is not just a cute, fancy, encouraging talk. It's not a TED talk. (laughs) I'm trying to help birth something in you that gives a, a hunger for God's word. This is the primary way that he speaks to us. Not the only way, but the primary way. When those other ways come, we're going to have the word of God, the written word, as a standard, as a way to judge the other words. That way, somebody won't come speaking another word, a false gospel. Because we'll know, no. No, that's not what God said. Like we need to go to a deeper place of intimacy, seeking him. Justice flows out of this. This is how we can be involved in in what is going on socially, not just because we we see the problem. No, but because we know this is the heart of God. (laughs) Our social activism flows out of this, seeking him, prioritizing his word. He says they hate him who, who reproves in the gate. They hate the one who was like bringing correction. They don't like that. Those who are falling away, they, they don't like correction. They don't like rebuke. They don't like anyone. Let me just be honest. None of us like anybody tell us what to do. If we're going to grow in God, if we're going to truly seek him and live, we've got to become a people who know who we are in God, not in ourselves, and people who can receive criticism, who can receive rebuke. I'm not talking about, you know, just harsh criticism, someone being critical of us. I'm not talking about, you know, somebody being abusive or anything like that. This is where the community of believers is kind of brought into the spotlight. I know my time is almost up. Verse 11, Amos turns from their relationship to God's word, their relationship to truth, to their relationship to other people. Mm, This is beautiful. This is the evidence. Verse 11, he says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor... You exact taxes of grain from him. You've built houses of of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. You've labored a lot, and you feel real, real good about all your success stories, about all of your wealth, about all the money you, quote-unquote, give away. But I'm rejecting you because you reject truth. Get this. When we reject the truth, this is what leads to opposition of the poor. Rejection of God's word is what leads to injustice. It leads to the absence of the the, the servant-minded believer. Those who walk with a concern for others like Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve. Detroit Church, I ask you today, how are you serving your city? How are you serving the place where God has planted you? Don't be like people who just go places just because. Have a sense of senseness about you. Because there's something God is after. Talking about lamenting, we see two times in the scriptures where Jesus weeps. One time he's weeping over the loss of life of Lazarus. Is he weeping because he doesn't know like, he's like, Lazarus is dead? what's going to happen? <laughs> if you know the story, we you know that's not why he's weeping. He's weeping with those who are weeping. He eventually causes Lazarus' life, Lazarus' body, back to full life. But the other instance we see him weeping, he's weeping over the city, Jerusalem. Because the people, God's people are about to miss their day of visitation. God's wanting to visit them through him and they have no clue. They have no clue their hearts are hardened. And Jesus looks over the city and he weeps. When is the last time you looked over your city and received God's heart for the city? I want you to know that as much as we are pretty good, many of us, especially in this church, of being in tune with the state of our city, we know the injustice that's happening in many facets. We can talk about it, whether it's housing, whether it's those who are unfairly taxed, whether it's education, whether it's crime, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's how we're misrepresented, whether it's where, you know, the powerful government officials take over certain aspects of this city in the name of, certainly not children education, in the name of power, we have a long history. We can speak to these things very well. I want you to know that nothing can be done against truth or against this city that is not done against God. it's, It's done against him. He knows it. He feels it. No matter how difficult your experience has been, how challenging the crisis has been, maybe it's, maybe you've experienced violence, brutal violence. There's a lot of bloodshed in our city. God is not disconnected from that. I want you to know that he has inserted himself. And our narrative, and it's done directly against him. Verse 12, he says, For I know how many are your transgressions, and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, you who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. This is a society where people start encouraging wrongdoing. They discourage people from standing for principle. Prudent voices are silenced. People who know truth are worried about the backlash, so they are silent. There's so much more here. My time is just about up, but I want to finish these last few verses that speak again to the appeal and the lamenting. Let me read verse 13 again. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. There's some prudent people here, and I know you have feelings about things that are happening in our city, that are happening in our country. I want you to know that you may feel like you should be silent, but God is not silent. God is not silent. And I don't believe God is calling us to be silent as well. I believe that God wants us to operate with wisdom, right? We can allow ourselves to be flagged down by the, just the muckiness and the, uh, the deception of some of the political banter. We got to rise above that. As people of God, amen. Jesus even warned his own disciples against certain leavens, right? He spoke of like the, the leaven of the, uh, the Sadducees, the leaven of the Pharisees. Like those were leavens that had to do with uh, look, seeking religious obligation or religious provision. Then he says, beware of the leaven of the Herodians. This, this, is, this means that don't put your trust in the systems, the governmental systems of man. He says, beware of it. Like red flag, danger, danger. <laughs> like, we've got to understand that. So it doesn't mean that we're silent. We have to understand the nature of the beast, understand who God has called us to be, and be vigilant as our God is. Amen. Now, moving right along, the appeal, verse 14, he says, seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Listen, God's presence his presence responds to their reaction. His presence rides upon their obedience. Goodness, their obedience. They're to seek good, which is here identified with establishing justice. This reminds me of another difficult word that the, another prophet, Jeremiah, came a few years later down the line and gave God's people. When they were looking to, they were in a time of exile, they were looking to go back to their homeland, their promised land. And the word that God had for them was, no, I don't want to send, God, I'm not sending you back yet. I want you to stay here and be faithful here in Babylon. Stay here. Start a family, build houses, plant gardens. And you get this, he says, I want you to seek the peace of the place where I've sent you because it's only then will you experience the peace you're looking for. Like, can, we, like, can we really receive that? Some of us are looking for peace. We're looking for justice, right? But, we're, but, but, but we don't want to be used by God to cause it to come to pass. No. Like this is the beauty and the, the majesty of our God. And when he calls us to, to be worshipped, we worshipers, we are changed from the inside out. And get this, we become like the one we worship. Oh, We become living, walking representatives of him. Verse 15 he says hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be, it may be now that the Lord, the God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. How are you doing with hating evil? He gives him them here like the the negative example to follow. There's some things that we've got to walk away from. There's certain things that we've got to hate. Love good, hate evil. This time he puts hating first. Hate evil. There are things that God hates. We know he's a loving God. There are things that he hates, that things that God cannot stand. We don't want to be on the wrong side of that. Loving what he hates and hating what he loves. Ouch. I know it's hot in here. I know y'all getting tired. I know your, your belly may be rumbling. It's almost time to eat. I'm almost done. I want to give you four quick things as true worshipers that respond. A musician can come on up. These are things that we see here in this text. Our commitment as worshipers into to holy living is both positive and negative. What I mean by that is there is a seeking, there's also a shunning. There's a seeking and there's also a shunning. There are some things we got to run to, but there are also some things that we've got to deny and reject. Number two, holiness is concerned both with actions and emotions. With actions and emotions. And emotions. How are we responding from an emotional place, but a set-apart place that represents God? Like, it's okay to have anger. Just make sure it's righteous anger. Amen. Uh, because of time, I'm not going to elaborate there. The third thing is our true worship and holiness must be pursued, not just personally, not just for self, but also for Community but also for society. God says, if you hate evil and love good, you're loving me, you're loving good, then this is going to establish justice within the city gates. And then the fourth thing, he says, holiness is not just like a a way of life or a rule of life. It is a means of life. This is how we receive life. This is how we live. Seeking him and being, being committed to what it means to be set apart for him. It's a means of life for us. After his appeal, he closes the passage with lamenting again. Verse 16, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing. And in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing, those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. L-O-R-D, all caps. It says Yahweh speaking. He's not just popping off at the mouth. He can do it. When you hear the phrase, when they hear the phrase, for I will pass through your midst. What he's saying, I'm not just going to show up with a smile on my face. When he says, I will pass through your midst." he's reminding them of what he did to Egypt. He's reminding them of what he did when he delivered them from Egypt and from the last plague. And the last plague was a plague upon the firstborn. And God said, if you take this lamb and you offer a sacrifice and you take the blood and you put it on the door, you also put it on the top of the door. He says, I'm going to pass over you as I pass through. But this points us to family. The heart of our father, the love of Jesus that calls us to himself, that calls us to know him intimately, that allows us to receive his mercy, receive his grace, be changed by him. My prayer for us is that we are not so great at looking the part that we come to these gatherings, we have these great times, and that we leave unchanged. I can't change you. I can't change myself. The worship team, as great as they are, they can't change us, right? To be changed from the inside out is the work of our God. Jesus says the Father is seeking true worshipers and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. He gives us this beauty, this dichotomy even of worship spirit and in truth the spirit the unseen the immaterial the elethial realm so to speak something that we can't see the ethereal realm we can't see it it's intangible but we also worship him in truth which means reality it's a realm that is tangible it's a realm that we can't see when we worship him according to the way he called us to worship true worship will be changed from the inside out that's why we call them this series, Like a Good Neighbor. Yes, God is upset with them, but they have been clowning. They have been disobedient for generations and generations. What God is saying now is like, now your disobedience is affecting and oppressing the poor. It's affecting the, your neighbors. God's like, I'm done with it. I'm over it. I pray that we, our people, who can worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that flowing out of our worship, be a justice that can be seen in the city gates father change us from the inside out thank you for listening to the detroit church podcast we'd love you to subscribe like and rate and if you're not already you can follow us on social media by searching for detroit church